BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. rdwolf.com is his other website, and you can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. And Professor Wolf, welcome back. I'm looking at this article from the Financial Times. Bonds, this is where people give money to corporations or states in exchange for interest on that money. But bonds worth $17 trillion now trade at a yield below zero, which means that if I'm buying a $100,000 bond from the state of Oregon, if it's a negative yield bond or from Ford Motor or whatever, I'm actually paying them to take my money. I don't understand. $17 trillion worth of negative yield bond. There's set, people are, you know, big investors or big companies or countries or, I mean, who's coming up with $17 trillion and why are they willing to pay somebody to hang on to the money? Well, here's the way it works. First of all, everybody needs to understand exactly what you just said, that a negative interest rate means that you're charging people who are lending you money. Think of it as they're paying you a fee to store or to hold their money over a few weeks, months, or years. So it is a situation in which usually it starts with a central bank. Banks that have more money than they can lend out have the right to park that money with the central bank in their country. Normally, the central bank pays them, as it always did, to store that money. It's a borrower paying an interest rate for what is effectively a loan. But we have such a bad economic situation in the world. We have such a crisis ongoing. Contrary to, for example, uh, Mr. Trump's boasts about a great economy, that we don't have enough business to justify uh, companies borrowing money and paying proper interest rates to then use that money. So the money is sitting there not being used. The banks put it in the central bank hoping to earn interest, but the central bank, being desperate that the economy is in such trouble, pulls a fast one. It says, okay, you can park your money with us, but we're going to charge you. It's a way of creating the incentive to the bank, go out there and find somebody who's willing to borrow it uh, and pay you for it, because if you leave it with us, you're going to have to pay us. It, it's a sign of how bad the economy is, because it's a way to force people who might otherwise have lent you the money without it being productive, to instead use it in the real economy to get people to buy things or companies to make things. So negative yielding bonds in general, broadly speaking, are an indication that government central banks are freaked out about the economy and trying to create a stimulus. Is that the, is that the kind of boil-down exactly version right, I just said? Right. That's right. It, you know, normally people understand 
that if the economy is down, one of the things central banks do is lower interest rates to make it cheaper for people to borrow in the hopes that they will and that that will stimulate the economy. Well, suppose they keep lowering it and people just don't do it because the economy looks so bad that even with lower interest rates, even when you can get cheaper money, you're not going to do it and invest it in real production and real jobs because you're so down on how the economy looks. Well, you just keep that logic going, and eventually it'll get to the point of lowering the interest rate below zero with the same intent of stimulating under these conditions something which, in fact, has not happened enough. And between you and me, there's no prospect it's about to happen anytime soon. And part of the reason you're seeing it right now is that this resurgence of COVID particularly here in the United States, is turning predictions of economic well-being into their opposite, and that is freaking out the Federal Reserve and other central banks. So uh, I believe it was five or six months ago, you and I had a conversation about negative interest rates, and you mentioned, as I recall, that there is a debate among economists about whether negative interest rates can even be effective. And if they can be effective, whether that effectiveness is limited to a very short term period or whether they can be effective over the long term at stimulating an economy. A, is my memory correct? And if so, B, has there been any kind of consensus achieved among economists or central bankers about this? And if this doesn't work, what's plan B? You're right about your memory. It has not worked. That's why we're in the economic difficulty that we're in again. Here's what has happened. By making money as cheap as the Federal Reserve has, and by pumping trillions of it into the economy, all that extra money available at such low, even negative interest rates has led the banks to pump the money into the one place where people still think they can make money, and that is the stock market, which has therefore become like a casino, like an immense Ponzi scheme in which everybody is pumping money in there, buying shares in the hope that they'll find someone else who can also borrow money very cheaply to buy those shares at a higher price a few weeks, a few months down the road. So we've had this bizarre situation over the last six months in which the mass of the people living in the real economy are in trouble and the tiny portion that own the bulk of the stocks are riding a stock market that goes ever further. What that tells you is that our economy is schizophrenic. It has a good stock market for the few, but a disaster for the many. And for the president to call this a great economy just shows you how unconnected all of this is from reality. And the plan B, well, at this point, with our government and most There is no plan B. There is the vague hope that somehow Mr. Biden or whoever replaces Mr. Johnson in England or the others will now finally understand that allowing the banks to be the determiner of how all of our economic troubles are to be solved is a plan that doesn't work and that a much more direct intervention is needed. But unfortunately, The Democratic Party and the liberals often uh, are not that much further ahead on these financial matters than the conservatives. So I'm not terribly hopeful that anything other than a broad-based economic downturn on the edge of which we now sit could force the kinds of changes that we need. Yeah. Are we on the edge of another Great Depression here? Right. Um, and if not, you know, will a COVID vaccine bring us out of it? Do you expect Jerome Powell to stay as the chair of the Fed? I certainly hope not. He has done really very little other than knee-jerk reactions to pressure from Mr. Trump. It is true that that will now be gone, assuming we don't have a coup d'etat in this country, and he will now be under the pressure of Mr. Biden. But there's nothing about his performance that would make you want to keep him So at this point, I think it's an open question. My guess is that Mr. Biden will replace him when his term is over. 
That's very interesting. I mean, he isn't an economist. He, he was no. one of the directors of the Carlyle Group, the weapons funding investment company. So it's amazing. Professor Richard Wolf, it's always great talking with you. Thanks so much for dropping by again this week. Thank you. His newest book, The System is the, the Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Democracy at Work.info and RDWolf.com are the websites. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Stick around back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. On we go, right? We're moving toward hopefully a reasonable America. All across America today, millions of people are terrified. And it's not just the people who are terrified of getting sick or terrified of dying or terrified of COVID causing a stroke or heart disease or dementia or mental illness or kidney failure. Now, 30 million Americans are unemployed. Keep in mind, before the COVID started, half of America couldn't deal with a $1,000 expense. And now we've got 30 million Americans drawing unemployment or having recently lost their unemployment because they've timed out. And because of repeated Republican cuts into the unemployment program going back years, a lot of people are going to lose their unemployment benefits at the end of this year. And meanwhile, since early summer, we've been adding 700,000 people every month to the rolls. Millions of small businesses companies that people have, in many cases, worked their entire lives, sometimes inherited from their parents, you know, dry cleaners shops, restaurants, retail stores, right across the board, small businesses all over America facing the destruction of what would otherwise be a middle-class dream and instead seeing their families' lives disintegrate. My mother's mother's family had a business, had a small business that was doing okay as they went into the Great Depression. They lost it. They lost their home. They lost everything. And my grandmother never recovered from that, frankly. And frankly, I don't think my mother ever recovered from that. I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing loss. And it's happening right now as we speak. I mean, literally every couple minutes, there's a family someplace in America who is deciding, okay, we're going to have to bankrupt this business. We're going to have to sell our home. We're going to have to sell our cars or our car, we're going to have to pull the kids out of college. I mean, whatever it may be, it's, it's the end. You know, over in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, who is a conservative, he is, he is to the right of a lot of American Republicans in many regards. Boris Johnson, the famous Tory Republican, just said, okay, we're going to shut down or at least partially shut down England here for a while because this virus is killing people and the hospitals can't deal with it. And what did their government do? What did the British Parliament do? What did the conservative-controlled British Parliament, the conservative-controlled British government? They said every person who draws a paycheck is going to get 80% of their paycheck going forward and it'll be paid directly to them from the government. But here, no. Six months ago, back in May, Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives passed a $3 trillion bill, the HEROES Act, that would have provided 600 bucks a week to unemployed Americans, that would have provided a strong support for small businesses, as kind of in contrast to the earlier bailouts, a lot of which went to big businesses, that would have strengthened our country that would have expanded health care options for people who have lost their health insurance because they have COVID or because they lost their jobs. All these things. And in the United States Senate, what did Mitch McConnell do yesterday? Yes, the Senate was in session all day yesterday. What did they do? Did they pick up this legislation to get money to unemployed people? No. Did they pick up legislation to protect the jobs of people who've lost their job? No. Did they pick up legislation to protect food stamps or, or provide food? I mean, we now have, you know, one in seven American children go, uh, reportedly going to bed hungry right now. 
30 million Americans uninsured and arguably probably more than that because it doesn't include, you know, all the unemployment statistics. But what did Mitch McConnell do? He pushed through six white, right-wing, unqualified, lifetime appointment federal judges. That's what he did yesterday. That's what the Republicans in the United States Senate did. Not one piece of legislation that would help average Americans or American small businesses was even considered. There was no discussion. We have a quarter million Americans dead or just about millions more disabled by this virus, more than 10 million Americans now with a pre-existing condition. And this is all they can do is push through unqualified judges and sell, you know, billions of weapons to the United Arab Emirates to further militarize the Middle East and make huge profits for the military defense industry. I mean, isn't it time to call these Republicans what they are, racist billionaire grifters? Isn't it time for America to admit that we have been the victims of a 40-year grift that started in a big way with Reagan pretending that he had some great new ideas that were really going to help the American middle class, when in fact 40 years of Reaganomics have gutted the American middle class? 2010 was the first year since long before Reagan that fewer than half of Americans are in the middle class. I mean, this is today's Republican Party. They campaign on, we are the champions of right to life. Right. But they fight every effort to help Americans stay alive and stay healthy. They say, we're in favor of the little guy. But they give $2 trillion in tax breaks to billionaires and say, oh, but we can't afford to write off the entire nation's student debt, one and a half trillion dollars. We can't afford that. That would be inflationary. We'll give two trillion dollars to the billionaires, but a billion and a half, a trillion, a trillion dollars to the billionaires, but a trillion and a half dollars for student debt. Nah, we can't. We could never do that. And really what they're saying when they say that, it wouldn't even be taking money away from the big banks that have loaned this money out because they'd be paid back. They would just lose their ability to make a profit going into the future. In other words, there'd be no pain for the billionaire class, just no more ongoing pleasure at the expense of you know, millions and millions of Americans. They say that they're the party of Christian values, but they fight every effort to give food to the hungry, to give health care to the sick, to give housing to the homeless, to give help to the poor. They claim to be the party of new ideas, but they insist on over $600 billion a year in government subsidies to the fossil fuel industry and its billionaire CEOs who are literally killing our planet while they block assistance, even modest assistance, for 21st century energy solutions. They say, we're in favor of America having a bright future and being a shining city on the hill. But they do everything they can to destroy America's public education system. They say they care about all Americans, but their judges, which is and elected officials, which is pretty much all they've done for the last four years, are almost uniformly white, wealthy, and outspokenly opposed to any assistance to communities of color in a crisis. They talk about law and order, but wink there and nod as uh, drug companies and bankers and polluting industries not just rip us off, but kill us. They say that for the working person, but they spent 40 years fighting working, worker safety provisions and any attempt to organize people into unions. They say bring the jobs home, but the USMCA that Trump brags about actually increases the, ta- the tax breaks that big corporations get when they move their jobs to, fact- to the factories in Mexico. They say they believe in elections, but they're fighting like tooth and nail to stop at least half of America from voting. You know, Americans are figuring out that Donald Trump has been a criminal, a con man, and a grifter his whole entire life. But the simple truth is, that's the entire Republican Party since 1980 and the Reagan Revolution. When is America going to recognize this? This is the Tom Hartman Program. When is the press going to stop behaving and pretending like the Republican Party is just another normal political party and start calling them all out for what they are, grifters?
Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sal in China Lake, California. Hey, Sal, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's on your mind today? I just wanted to know what kind of hold or compromise that Putin has on Trump that Trump, since he got elected, has been trying to destroy the United States. I'm guessing that the answer is that Trump has been laundering money for at least 30 years for Russian oligarchs. And frankly, I don't think this is limited to Russia. But since you specifically asked about Putin and Russia, uh, Trump has been laundering money for Russian oligarchs. And so when Putin says jump, Trump says how high? You know, one of the first things he did when he became president was, you know, invite the Russian ambassador into his office and spill secret Israeli intelligence to him that may have compromised one of our spies. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I think it's all about the money, Sal, and the crimes. There's multiple Russian oligarchs who have wildly overpaid Donald Trump for properties. And again, it's not just them. I mean, the Saudis, you know, they, they had an entire floor in Trump Tower. They rented the, you know, the entire Trump hotel for a while. I mean, there's autocratic government after autocratic government is throwing money at Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is willingly doing their bidding. He doesn't care about America. He cares about himself. He does. But the news media, both conservative and liberal, has known since 1980 that Trump was a con man, a grifter, that Trump had no moral center. And nobody said... Well, I think, I think people in New York knew that, Sal, and they knew it really well, which yeah, is why Trump but was... New York is not California. No, but when you say people all across the United States, most people all across the United States, what they knew of Donald Trump was this carefully crafted, phony baloney Hollywood image that that NBC over, uh, what was it, 12 years he was on Apprentice or 10 years, whatever it was, that they, I mean, they had coaches for him. They scripted the show. He played the role of a billionaire, a successful billionaire businessman, when in fact he is a deeply indebted con man who has been, you know, laundering money for international mafias. Do you see any prosecution going forward once he leaves office from the Southern District of New York? We'll see. I honestly don't know the answer to that, Sal. You know, we're hearing some press reports that Biden wants to do what Obama did with Bush's war crimes, which is let's look forward, not back. I don't think that uh, Letitia James, the attorney general of New York State, is going to be quite as charitable or Cyrus Vance, the, the prosecutor, the district attorney for New York City. I think that there are a number of states that are looking into crimes by Trump. The country of Scotland now is looking into where did he get his money for these properties? It looks like it all came out of money laundering. There was a special that was produced there. You can watch it on one of the networks. I forget which one you know, about Donald Trump's money and the whole Scotland thing. You know, I think there's a day of reckoning coming for him and for the entire Trump crime family. I don't think it's necessarily going to be in Joe Biden's hands. And frankly, you know, if other agencies and people can can make sure that Donald Trump goes to prison, 
I, I don't need Joe Biden to do it, but I do think that we need to say to future potential wannabe dictators, no, you can't do that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Share the Tom Hartman program with your friends. We're available on SiriusXM, Free Speech TV, Pacifica, commercial stations nationwide, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, on the Tom Hartman app, and you can even tell your smart speaker to listen to the Tom Hartman program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So much grift, so little time. A couple of other things that I thought are really worth mentioning. Mitch McConnell is, of course, the roadblock to everything, right? He is the hole where good legislation goes to die. That's, that's a Mitch McConnell. But back earlier in the year, in May, the Department of Transportation, each, each major department in the government has an, an inspector general. This is a law that goes back to the 70s. It was one of the post-Nixon reforms. And the inspector general, you know, it's like the internal affairs guy on the cop shows. You know, he's, he's in the organization, but he's really separate or she separate and independent of the organization. And the inspectors general are, are basically the police within the agencies. And so the top cop in the Department of Transportation, this is a guy named Mitch Bame. He was, he's been there 17 years. And he was looking into what looked like some, at the very least, inappropriate behavior by the Department of Transportation. Apparently, the person who was at the head of the Department of Transportation was funneling money into Kentucky, federal DOT money, your tax dollars and mine, into Kentucky in ways that would help Mitch McConnell. And this inspector general was looking into this and saying, you know, hey, this might be unethical. This might be even a crime. It might be considered self-dealing because the head of the Department of Transportation is a woman named Elaine Chow. Elaine Chow is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Her family's a very, very wealthy Taiwan-based shipping. They own a shipping, worldwide shipping operation. And she's the wife of Mitch McConnell. So back in May, when the inspector general started looking into potential crimes by Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, what did the administration do? Well, Donald Trump basically demoted Mitch Bame, the uh, inspector general, and replaced him with a guy named Skip Elliott, who was a uh, political appointee that Mitch McConnell had put in place there. Yeah, brilliant. Speaking of Kentucky, I think that it's really, by the way, the therefore for what I just said is if Democrats want to make life uncomfortable for Mitch McConnell, investigating the Department of Transportation and Elaine Chow might be the place to start. Seems like an idea, right? I mean, House oversight, this is, you know, a great place to start. But speaking of Kentucky, I mean, Kentucky is like the welfare queen of welfare queens, to use uh, Ronald Reagan's old racist trope, only apply it to states. This, uh, you know, for every $1 that Kentucky pays in federal taxes, they get back $2.41 in federal taxpayer money. Not bad, huh? <laughs> if, if every 100 bucks you sent to the government is taxes, they sent you back $241. Uh, what would you think? Uh, pretty good. In fact, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Louisiana, these three states, 40% of the total income in these three states comes from your and my federal tax dollars. And yet these guys have the temerity to claim or to complain about Americans wanting uh, unemployment benefits wanting some support with food when hunger is actually stalking our land right now, help with housing for homeless people as homelessness is exploding. We are in the Trump Great Depression. We need to start calling it that. It's the Trump Great Depression. Much of the federal budget deficit, the non-defense federal budget deficit, is because of red states. People on disability, for example, the top five states with people on disability, Mississippi, Kentucky, Arkansas, Alabama, and West Virginia. 
nine of the top 10 states with the lowest what's called labor force participation rate. In other words, uh, you know, you can you can look at unemployment as people who are actually, you know, on unemployment or you can simply look at who could work but isn't working because after a year or two, depending on the state you're in or, or even six months in some states, you no longer qualify for unemployment benefits. And so, you know, you are just you. You're not considered unemployed, <laughs> unemployed anymore. So what they do is they look at labor force participation rate, the number of people who could work if there were jobs, but they're not. And the, t- the top 10 states, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, West Virginia, South Carolina, Tennessee, North Carolina. Red states have the worst poverty in the United States. Mississippi, 20%, 19.8% poverty in Mississippi. Louisiana, 18%. West Virginia, 17%. Arkansas, 16%. Red states have the least educated populations. And yet they keep, I mean, in the face of all of this, these folks keep buying into this grift, this Republican grift, just because the Republican Party has successfully branded themselves with NASCAR and uh, and anti-abortion slogans. It's You're bizarre. listening to the Tom Hartman Program. What's it going to take for Americans to wake up and understand, realize the depths of the grift of 40 years of Reaganomics? For our book club today, we're reading Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot. This is from Chapter 3, Don't Look Back. The political history of the second half of the 20th century could be summarized as the conflict between its two great narratives, neoliberalism and social democracy. Social democracy in this era, whose story I briefly summarized in Chapter 1, acquired much of its power and coherence from the thinking of one remarkable man. Across four decades, John Maynard Keynes's work dominated economic thought and practice. During the period the French called the Trentaglarissius, 1945 to 1975, his prescriptions are widely credited with reviving economies and distributing their benefits. That that they remain more or less the only mainstream alternative to neoliberalism today reveals a remarkable stagnation of both thought and ambition. The first and most obvious problem with an attempt to use Keynesian social democracy as a core political narrative is that the story is more than 80 years old. Political stories need to be renewed. If politics does not feel fresh, it struggles to kindle the imaginative excitement from which hope arises. The second problem is that the surviving enthusiasm for Keynes among mainstream parties is highly selective. It has been reduced in most cases to lowering interest rates when economies are sluggish and engaging in tepid counter-cyclical public spending, which means injecting public money into the economy when unemployment is high or recession threatens. Other Keynesian measures, such as raising taxes when an economy grows quickly to dampen the boom-bust cycle, the fixed exchange rate system, capital controls, and a self-balancing global banking system, an international clearing union, all of which Keynes saw as essential complements to these policies, have been discarded and forgotten. Not only does this ensure that the rich old story has been reduced to two thin chapters, whose loss of context destroys their narrative power, but the absence of other Keynesian measures, as well as changed global circumstances, weakens the effectiveness of the remaining elements of policy. Let me give you an example. In 2009, in the hope of boosting the economy in the wake of the financial crash, the British government spent £300 million on stimulating sales of new cars. Under its scrappage scheme, if car owners traded in their old vehicles for new ones, the government, with the help of manufacturers, knocked £2,000 off the price. This lavish program was partly justified as an environmental measure, though it was clear from the outset that it would lead to a rise in environmental impacts as the materials and energies used in manufacturing new cars outweigh any likely savings from better fuel economy. Its primary purpose was to boost British car assembly plants and protect the jobs of their workers. But European state aid rules forbade such schemes from discriminating between cars made in Britain and cars made abroad. British car parts assembled only some 15% of the vehicles sold in that country, which meant that 85% of the benefit went to car plants in Germany, Japan, and other manufacturing nations. We could see this spending as foreign aid to some of the world's richest nations. The current pattern of globalization, which developed partly as a result of abandoning the fixed exchange rates and capital controls that Keynes advocated, ensures that this problem is to some extent repeated wherever Keynesian stimulus spending is applied. 
It might lead to a general, if scarcely detectable, global economic uplift, but the domestic impact will necessarily be weaker than Keynes intended. This issue is compounded by the phenomena of job-free growth, caused in part by the automation now spreading into almost every economic sector. Today, governments pulled the starter cord, spending public money and cutting interest rates, that ignited the economy and employment in the past, only to discover that it snaps before the motor fires. Two feeble measures, removed from the rich framework of thought and narrative in which they were once embedded, have little chance of sustaining a political revival. Another issue is that the troubles that beset the Keynesian model in the 1970s have not disappeared. While the oil embargo of 73 was the immediate trigger for the lethal combination of high inflation and high unemployment, called stagflation back then, that Keynesian policies were almost powerless to counteract, problems with the system had been mounting for years. Falling productivity and rising costs push inflation, wages and prices pursuing each other upwards, were already beginning to erode support for Keynesian economics. Most importantly, perhaps, the program had buckled in response to the political demands of capital. Strong financial regulations and controls on the movement of money began to weaken in the 1950s as governments started to liberalize financial markets. Richard Nixon's decision in 71 to suspend the convertibility of dollars into gold destroyed the system of fixed exchange rates on which much of the success of Keynes' policies depended. The capital controls introduced to prevent financiers and speculators from sucking money out of balanced Keynesian economies collapsed. Today, it's hard to find a mainstream politician in Europe or the Anglophone nations, including those who call themselves Keynesians, prepared to call for their reintroduction. We cannot hope that the strategies deployed by global finance that helped to destroy the efficacy of Keynes' measures in the 70s will be unlearned. If the soft Keynesianism proposed by opponents of neoliberalism is to amount to anything but tinkering, it has to confront a wider set of challenges than most of its advocates have yet been prepared to acknowledge. But perhaps the biggest problem residual Keynesianism confronts in the 21st century is that when it does work, it collides headfirst with the environmental crisis. The book Out of the Wreckage by George Monbiot. Christopher in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Christopher, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. I just had a, some thoughts, and this is kind of the, the image I've had in my mind, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm not a conspiracy guy, but with Trump, you don't know what he's going to do. I, I just had this image in my mind where he's in a plane. Now, I don't know if he's going to be in, it, in his own plane with the big letters Trump or Air Force One or leasing a jet of some sort on his way to Russia and I have had this vision in my mind where F-16s are surrounding the plane and pointing to the pilot to land, to land the plane. <laughs> so, but uh, would do you? Think I think that- if he flees the country, uh, in all probability, uh, during the uh, Biden administration, that uh, Joe Biden will just let him go, and just don't chase him or ask him to, to land. Yeah, just let him go into exile. And frankly, if it looks like he's about to go to jail, I'm, you know, he's a flight risk. This guy is really rich. He may even have multiple passports. His wife and son both have Slovenian passports as well as American passports. And I think it probably might be a matter of public record if Trump ever applied for a Slovenian passport. But he probably wouldn't, you know, take him 15 minutes to get one. You know, or maybe all three of them are going to apply for residence in one of the other countries. There are a few Caribbean islands or, or islands. I don't think they're all in the Caribbean where uh, you can buy citizenship, essentially. And, uh, you know, billionaires have done that. I, you know, I, I, I believe Peter yeah. Thiel has New Zealand citizenship, for example. You know, one of the guys who made his fortune, I think, with eBay and, and Google, as I recall. Oh, do you think that Trump would be so bold to steal Air Force One? <laughs> No, no. People have this apocalyptic notion of Donald Trump doing a Rambo routine, you know, staying at the White House, barricaded in and shooting anybody who's trying to come in and get him and all. That's not going to happen. He's, he's probably going to leave the White House and go down to Mar-a-Lago either for Thanksgiving or Christmas and just not come back. That's my prediction. My wife yeah. thinks the same thing. That that's what he'll do. But it's going to be an interesting scenario. Yeah, I agree, to say the very least. I I absolutely agree. Thanks a lot for the call, Christopher. Good to hear from you. Shirley in Gladstone, Michigan. Hey, Shirley, what's on your mind? I'm calling regarding the gap, the two-and-a-half-month gap between the, the end of the election and the transfer of power to the president elect. I was listening to a podcast that Norm Ornstein was on, 
And he said that this is totally unnecessary, that other countries do an almost instant transfer. This is giving Trump the opportunity to do all kinds of mischief, to destroy evidence. And I just don't understand why this country never anticipates anything, and we have to be at a near crisis before they're aware of what's going on. No, I get it. It's built into the Constitution, surely. Originally, it was in March when the new president was sworn in, and that changed in 19, right after the election of 1932 because it took FDR five, six months to get sworn in, and the crisis got so bad that they amended the Constitution. And I think it should be amended again. That's a great point. Shirley, thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On this week's Science Revolution, Dr. Jason Hill with the University of Minnesota says cutting greenhouse gases from food production is urgent and that our food systems may be the dark horse of climate change. Investigative journalist Catherine Eban drops by in her new book, Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Mari Margill with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights will be telling us about the huge win in Florida for the rights of nature. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Dwayne in Lincolnville, Kansas. Hey, Dwayne, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Donald Trump isn't going to admit defeat here. He's never going to concede. It's all about money to him. As long as he is playing the victim and saying he was cheated, he can milk people out of as much money as he can, and he's never going to ever concede. Yeah. I think it's not just the money. I think that he was so psychologically wounded by the way that he grew up, by his father basically being a psychopath himself and his mother being just disgusted with the whole thing and sending him off to military academy. And then when he came home for the summers, his mother would go to Scotland and not bring him. This is a kid who grew up without parents. This is a kid who grew up getting whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. He was the center of the universe. He raged at his nannies and his teachers. He hired people to take his exams for him. He's got an extraordinary sense of entitlement. And in addition to being a psychopath, he's a narcissist. And I think he's actually delighted, frankly. I think he's getting pleasure out of a couple of hundred thousand Americans dying. And I realize how strong that sounds, but I'm not the first one to have said that. I've had several psychologists and psychiatrists on this program saying the same thing. I think there's deep-seated psychological illness that we are watching. We are watching a mentally ill person run this country, and that's a large part of the problem. And part of his mental illness is greed. I mean, it's just insane greed. But, uh, but part of his greed is also survival, because he's been living on borrowed money since the 1980s. First, he burned through the $400 million he, he took from his father and stole from his siblings. And then when he ran through all that, he started borrowing money from banks. He ran through that, and then he started taking money from oligarchs around the world who were basically laundering the income from crimes. That's who he is and where he's at. Vince in uh, Wellsville, Kansas. Hey, Vince, what's up? Too much to even think about sometimes. You know, it is. I'm 72 years old, 
I've seen a lot of politics and a lot of government and a lot of social change. Where I am today is this is not the America I was raised in. The America I was raised in, at least we had the facade of believing that we were right and just and the strongest and best in the world. Well, today we're a divided country. We have an American oligarch who is running the country, or at least cracking a whip on the people who do. And it is amazing to me. You start out with Trump saying, Russia, are you listening? And then you find that his policies, his statements, the things that he promotes have caused our country to be so incredibly divided with state against state, neighbor against neighbor, family against family, no one even discussing what's best, just blaming. And it would seem to me that the Russian oligarchs and the government there are overjoyed with what's happened to this country. Anything that would would cause disarray among the populace, anything that would cause us to lose faith in our country and in our democracy is right in line with what they think betters their position in the world. And I'm thoroughly disgusted that we have a narcissistic sociopath in such a position of power, and I will be glad when he's gone, and I'd love to be one of the people who gets to drag his ass out of the White House. And that's all I have to say. I'm with you, Vince, although I guarantee you nobody's going to have to drag his ass out. And frankly, I think anybody who is over 50, and certainly anybody over 60 in the United States, has an obligation to be telling their children and grandchildren what this country was like, for better and for worse. But what this country was like when we didn't have billionaires fueling phony grassroots insurgencies like the Tea Party and Freedom Works and all this kind of stuff. And we didn't have billionaires writing all of our laws. And there was an American middle class. And there was, you know, particularly starting in the mid 60s, a genuine effort through the great society and a genuine effort to try to bring about some sort of racial reconciliation and equality in the United States. And of course, in 1980, Ronald Reagan put an end to all that. And for 40 years, we've just been going backwards. It's so unfortunate. Janice in Englewood, Colorado. Hey, Janice, what's up? Hey, I wanted to let you know that the governor of Wyoming took $15 million from the CARES Act six days ago and put it into the fossil fuel industry. He justifies that by saying that will create jobs, employment in Wyoming, because they'll put oil and gas workers back to work. Well, you know, to the extent that you've got existing industries, whether you and I like them or not, and there may be a way to help people keep their jobs, I can understand that, Janice. My complaint is not that that, specifically that's what happened. My complaint is that every other developed democracy in the world, Canada's doing this, Germany's doing it, France is doing it, England's doing it. The government gives the payments when people are unemployed as a result of COVID, which is the case with the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry in Wyoming. The government, instead of trying to pass the money to the giant corporations, by the way, executive bonuses have just been exploding over the last year. Instead of giving that money to the corporations, they're giving the money to the individual workers. Boris Johnson saying 80% of everybody's salary is going to be covered and it's not going to be paid by your employer. It's going to be paid by us, by the government. And that's, it's not exactly what the Democrats passed out of the House back six months ago with the HEROES Act, but it's damn close. And Mitch McConnell and the Republicans will have nothing to do with it. So, you know, spot on, Janice. Thank you very much. Bob in uh, Spokane, Washington. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm calling to tell you about an incident at my local grocery store on November 12th. I went in uh, after the government said to go get your holiday food and uh, quarantine. And I was wearing my mask and my gloves and my hat and 
uh, employee in the Fred Meyer Bakery wasn't wearing her mask or her gloves, and she got right up in my face. I backed up, Whoa, that's she weird. got up in my face again. I was kind of shocked by it, but now I'm sick and I'm in quarantine, and I've been thinking about this, and this is a hate crime. She never seen me before. She don't know nothing about me but the color of my skin and my mask. Have uh, you reported that, Bob, to I Fred Meyer? I reported uh, it yesterday. The health officials mm-hmm. here in Spokane say that they're not enforcing anything. They can't do anything. Only the state and the federal government, as far as I know, they haven't done anything here. Yeah. I would call the store anyway, and ask to talk I to the manager. I, I did call somehow. the store, though. And I yeah. think we should reclaim the frame. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. And don't just call your local store, by the way. Call the headquarters of the chain. I'm not sure where they are located, but it shouldn't be hard to find out. But I'm sorry to hear that you're not well, Bob. And thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the place where we dare to ask, is Walmart a person? And we dare to say, no, not a chance. And we need to change that Supreme Court decision. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? I think one of the problems we got in America is we are so right-wing oriented. We have this propaganda of hyper-capitalism, individualism, you know, the market knows all, and it's a load of rubbish. It really is. I mean, I think one of the big things, the problems, is that it's not that we don't have movements. We don't have, you know, protests, you know. I mean, yeah, we got protests and all that stuff. I mean, it's good, but it's not going to change anything. We need to get out to the masses and start educating them about what capitalism is, why it's screwing people over, and how we can change it. Because this yeah. is this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. We have a we have two hundred forty thousand people dead, thirty million people unemployed, and then the rich are just getting away with pure stinking murder. Bezos is gonna be the first trillionaire ever soon at the rate things are going. How can anybody defend capitalism? In 2020, I'm, I'm asking this. Well, it depends on how you theories. define capitalism, Jared. I mean, well, you know, I mean, if you if you look around the world at developed countries, uh, China is practicing an even more brutal form of capitalism than we are. They're practicing proto-fascist capitalism. We're practicing a far more brutal form of capitalism than they do in the UK. The UK is practicing a far more brutal capitalism than Denmark and Sweden. The countries that have completely rejected capitalism are, in most cases struggling. And I probably uh, depart from Professor Wolf in this regard. I don't think it's capitalism because I think that there is a, a role in economies for investment. I, I, but I think that we've got it all wrong. We're, we're putting our priorities in the wrong place. If somebody wants to engage in capitalism, they have to do it in a way that is good for their community, that is good for their employees, that is good for their instit- the institution of their company, and that is good for their customers. And, and, you know, we have set aside all of those things and said the only thing that matters is profit. Um, and, that, and that distorts anything that might even resemble capitalism. Uh, my retort is, my retort basically is we've tried this before with New Deal and climate change is going to kill us all. Capitalism will not save us. The Paris Accords will not save us. Yeah, but neither is communism. I mean, you know, there has to be... I'm I'm not sure that we're not comparing apples to apples here, but Jared, thank you for the call. It's coming up on 10 Minutes Before the Hour. We'll be right back. I'm speaking at the Bioneers 2020 conference. It's running December 5th and 6th and 12th and 13th. My keynote is how all life is organized around democracy. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Oh, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Charles in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? Yes, sir. Uh, you were bringing up Reagan, and it's so funny. People 
really uh, too many people just really don't study history. I, I watched uh, East Chicago, Gary, South Chicago, just in essence go down the tubes under Reagan. Because I, I, one of your callers last week was talking about steel mill or the steel factories and uh, what happened in Youngstown. I'm like, uh, you need to go back like 30 some odd years or so, 30 plus years or so, and look at what happened in, uh, again, the East Chicago Gary Hammond area, the Inland Steel Mill. I mean, it was just tremendous. This was like a little city that manufactured steel. And I didn't know what I was mm-hmm. watching as a kid because basically you could graduate from high school. We had two major high schools, East Chicago, Washington, and Roosevelt. You can graduate from high school next day and go start making real good money in the steel mill. That's what it used to be. Well, right about when Reagan came in, I started noticing the guys that were graduating a, a couple of years ahead of me, they were going to work, they were laid off, then they were called back to work, then they were laid off, and then they weren't called back anymore. And I didn't understand at the time how Reagan and the Republicans, why everybody wants to blame, uh, excuse me, a lot of people want to blame Democrats for trade, how Reagan and the Republicans allowed so much foreign steel to come into the country and thus yep. began the downfall of uh, the steel factories in America. And and people need to really understand, if you have a community that primarily depends on an, uh, a business, uh, a, 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 big, a big business in your area, a major corporation in your area, and that corporation leaves, you will, don't be surprised when you watch how bad it becomes. The, cr- the crime goes up. It's like everything happened when, it ha- when that happened with the steel mills. Then the gang members. I started seeing gangs, I had stuff I had never seen before. Then I watched crack cocaine come in under the Reagan administration. And it's just when you take away people's livelihood like that on such a huge scale, it's unfortunate. Some people, it just changes things. It's just crime runs rapid. So that, that's pretty much what I wanted to input. Thanks, Al. No, you're, you're absolutely right, Charles. And, and the bottom line is that people know how to be entrepreneurs. Americans know how to be, and it's not just Americans. I mean, all over the world, this is true. But to use America as the example, we know how to be entrepreneurs. We, we know how to start a business. We know how to, how, to, how to make our way. We know how to figure out how to make a little money on the side or as a primary you know, living, whether it is uh, you know, shoveling snow in the winter or whether it's having a job or it, when the jobs go away, whether it's selling crack cocaine or pot or, or you know, uh, breaking into houses and fencing things. I mean, the bottom line is people are going to figure out a way to get through. People are going to figure out a way to basically run their own little businesses. And if you don't have legal business structure, if you don't have a reasonable economy, if you don't have good companies that are, that are you know, basically supporting the core of, of the community, then those people are going to become entrepreneurs in ways that, you know, society frowns on. But they're entrepreneurs nonetheless because, hey, this is the only opportunity they've got. Spot on. Sally in Roundup, Montana. Hey, Sally, what's on your mind today? I called you, oh, I guess last month or the month before, and said my fear was that Trump would take us to war. Well, it sounds like he's thinking about it and just to, to make it hard for Biden. Yeah. Well, apparently last week or the week before, he asked the Joint Chiefs and others in his uh, circle to provide him with options for attacking Iran. And one of the reports I've read says that they came back to him and said, you don't want to do that. It could spin out of control. It would be a terrible legacy for you. You would be viewed as, you know, the, the idiot who started that war in the Middle East. Others, and that's probably like the John Bolton contingent and uh, the uh, Bibi Netanyahu contingent, are saying to him, oh, yeah, this is the way to do it. Yep, we got to get rid of Iran now while we can. And we've got this alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, the anti-Iran alliance. And so no better time than now. And I'm with you, Sally. I'm very concerned about it. And uh, but, you know, let your elected officials know. 202-224-3121. You can call any member of Congress at that number. Don in Seattle. Hey, Don, what's up? Hi. So I love Bernie Sanders, but I think he made a huge mistake. And that mistake is this. Paul Krugman, Cornell West, and Noam Chomsky say Bernie Sanders is a new deal liberal. He's a social Democrat. He's not a socialist. But Bernie calls himself a socialist. And I've been telling people. Bernie does not call himself a socialist. When asked, he will say that he is an admirer of the democratic socialist system like they have in Denmark. 
that is so badly taken out of context, Don. And I'm so sick and tired of hearing Republicans on supposedly liberal MSNBC, particularly Joe Scarborough in the morning, but also what's her name in middays, saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is this Bernie. He's a socialist. No, Bernie's not a socialist. And democratic socialism is not Soviet socialism. And the Democratic Party has to stop being the cowardly lion. We have to stop curling up in a ball every time somebody yells socialist. Screw them. They're fascists. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 